Second Samuel this evening, chapter 14. Kind of an uneventful chapter. I mean, not get excited about a lot of it in it. Uh, <clears throat> the problem with exceptions, that's the title. There's an old comedic line where a man says to another man, I never forget a face, but in your case, I'll make an exception. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just, it just could be trouble. Uh, the Lord is silent in this chapter, in this <clears throat> chapter that really is a clumsy effort to restore Absalom uh, to the kingdom. And I, I think Absalom was justified in killing Amnon for his capital offense against Tamar, Absalom's sister. It's in the law, Leviticus 20, verse 17. If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, it is a wicked thing, and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall bear his guilt. And so Absalom saw himself as being the avenger of, of blood, and well, it wasn't blood in Tamar's case, but it was according to the law. And it was probably a gray zone for, in some ways, but it changes everything. And the first time that we went through this, I pretty much sided with most commentators and jumped on. I mean, Absalom's a bad guy. He's, he's going to get worse. I don't want to make it sound as though he is a righteous man. <clears throat> but really, David is the one that neglected to do what he was supposed to do which precipitated all of these uh, ugly twists and turns. And so the king left Amnon unpunished. Absalom waited two years, and at, when the situation presented itself, he took it. And later in life, though, he's going to commit a worse crime in dishonoring his father to the point of wanting to kill him to take the throne. And it may all go back to these events here. So we have to pay attention to stories like this, as always, looking for ourselves in the story, looking for the consequences, the failures, the things that succeeded. These are the things that are supposed to be there to make us stronger as believers. And the New Testament, of course, teaches that very thing. Well, if we look back at chapter 13 and the last two verses... Verses 38 and 39, we get a feel for where David is. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. And that ties right in now to chapter 14, verse 1. So Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. Absalom. So David is, uh, you know, he's very much disturbed by how all of this, has his family is falling apart. And he really doesn't know what to do about it <clears throat> because the Lord is not with David as he once was. This is the fallout from his sin. Uh, in time, David will recover, but not yet. In verse 1, where Joab is concerned about David, uh, the family violence, uh, the son in exile, Joab, somewhat out of character, is looking out for David. Well, that part's not out of character. He looks out for David, but he's, he's, looking, he's getting involved in something that doesn't involve killing someone. And it's kind of odd for him. Uh, he never hesitated to kill an opponent, but beneath that rough exterior, there is this tenderness towards David. He sees David is, is bummed out, and Joab's going to come up with this elaborate, clumsy plan that in the end brings Absalom back, but um, I think with a lot of question marks surrounding it. Where was Nathan? Maybe Nathan said, listen, this is a family issue, and I am not getting involved. And so Joab's going to somewhat mimic Nathan's approach, which was not uncommon in that ancient world to use these stories to make your point. And, well, Joab wants them reconciled so that David can become David again. Where is the David of chapter 1? He's not here. And we can go through this in our lives. 
It, you know, the Lord Jesus, he is unchanging. There's no need for improvement. But we evolve and or devolve. We have to be careful of these things. Uh, the, it says here, the king's heart was concerned about Absalom, as I read from chapter 13. Uh, I think also David is just tired of this drawn-out, never-ending family soap opera. It's been five years since the crime was committed against Tamar, because Absalom waited two years, and he's three years in, in the land of Moab when he will be brought back. And then it will be another two years before he sees David's face. So this is drawn out. Uh, and I think that this is part of why Joab is behaving the way he is behaving. It's a sticky situation. Verse 2, And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. I am sure Joab was so proud of himself. It's, just, it's it, to come up with such a goofy plan. Uh, her wisdom is, seems to be in beguiling others. No, not in a negative way necessarily. She is likely a storyteller or an actress. There was some entertainment in theater. I, I strongly believe that the Song of Solomon was a play or an opera where they would sing things out, and we've lost some of that in, in the translation. Not the older translations. I think they're, they're better than the modern ones. But anyway, uh, as for which character is speaking, I think she was, um, because just being, being wise is not enough to pull this off. You can be very wise, and, but not a good actor. Or, and it just get exposed. David, you know, see right through it. So I think she's got some background in this area, and Joab knew it. Perhaps he was uh, a fan of the theater in Tekoa. Anyway, he is going to use this woman to tell the same type of story that Nathan did with uh, success. Uh, it's going to end up coming out as Joab, Joab had hoped. I also think Joab understood the dynamics between uh, a man and a woman, and that he, he could not have a man do this. David would not tolerate it as he's going to, because after a while, she begins to annoy me. Uh, she says, you know, like, oh, one more thing, King. Oh, man, come on. Uh, okay, you're not annoyed by her, if you know the story. But anyway, uh, I think, you know, he remembers. He was there for when Abigail disarmed him. Is this not the, the case with the story of King Kong? I mean, he's just this giant ape, giant ape, but the woman was like, he was protecting her. And he fell in love with her as, you know, as not, not weird here, I don't mean in that way, but he was just, you know, I had a dog, a German shepherd, and no man except me could come near him. Any woman could walk up to this dog. He was a big German shepherd. And uh, it's just, it was the oddest thing. Uh, he was good with kids, too. He wouldn't go after them. But if a grown man came anywhere near this dog, he would go off. I should have named him King Kong. He was one of my favorite dogs. But uh, So th there is that dynamic. And, of course, we live in an age where everyone's trying to tell us there's no difference. And, they, of course, they're just perverted from hell. They're not even a normal perversion. But anyway, uh, so he says to her that he wants her to pretend. Don't put oil on. You know, she needs to be in costume. Uh, play the role of someone who is grieving, self-neglect look, uh, neglected look, and, and that's that. This is her assignment, and she's going to do very well at this. Which again, uh, you know, you just can't get up and act. You you have to practice. I don't know how they did it. And today they use mirrors a lot. Uh, then I guess they use puddled puddles. You know, look sorrowful. You know, look happy on cue. Anyway, verse three. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to cast her in a bad light, even though I get a little irritated with her. I, I'm not trying to do that at all. I think she's just fine. What do you want me to do? And he tells her, who says no to Joab? Uh, so uh, the Lord, again, he, he, never is going, he doesn't really bless this, though, like I said, Absalom does come back. 
ultimately it is a tragedy and not a happy ending when he Absalom will drag the kingdom into war. We'll get that next chapter. But no one could see this coming. No one could see this vile, treasonous man up to no good. Uh, everybody is just seeing him as the crown prince who is, you know, the most handsome man in town, which really works against Absalom and the people. Verse 4 and when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. And so she follows the court protocol before a monarch. Had Joab not got her into the court, then a lower court would have first taken this in Tekoa somewhere. Uh, so Joab gets her in, and she goes right to work. And I think David is, you know, has this desire to help. To, to rule as, as a, uh, a wise king, and she's taking advantage of that. Verse 5, Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. All right, well, that's an important part of the story because that means she has to depend on some other male for survival, for income, or a quality of life that's not just a, a, a drag every single day of her life. Now, remembering that Joab has formulated this story designed to hold David's attention and to get what Joab thinks is best for David. Uh, the kings in Israel were charged with watching out especially for widows. And uh, this is in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 24. It's, it's outstanding. And David wants to do that. But her case that she's going to present to him is, is unique. Since it is about the death of, or the death of one of her sons, and potentially the other one also, uh, one was murdered by the other. Subsequently, she faces uh, he faces the death penalty for that, which would leave her without a male in that society uh, to to bring in the in income. Also, would mean the family would be destroyed. So she's masquerading as a real life victim, and she again she has to be more than wise to pull off this disguise. You see, that's a paradox. It's original. She has to be wise to pull off the disguise. You get it? Uh, want me to say it again? Anyway, she has to be convincing. This fictitious mother wanted her son to be an exception to the law because he killed his brother, and she's going to want him to not suffer the penalty. And so she's presenting this hard, shape, uh, this, this hard case exception. Verse 6, Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. Again, how often has this been true in history? There was no one to part them. Cain and Abel, of course, come to mind. And also, this is the story of Absalom and Amnon. Uh, verse 7. <clears throat> now, and now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish the amber that is left to uh, that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. Now, initially, initially David's not buying this. He, he's going to handle this initially the right way, the way uh, a wise way. But then he he begins to to make the exception. In her story, the family wanted justice. They wanted the the, the murderer killed held accountable according to the law of Moses. But she appealed uh, against their demand to uphold the law of mercy. So now we have a conflict. Uh, to counter the law of Moses, there's the law of mercy from God. Uh, Numbers 14, this is when the Jews, you know, were not wanting to go into the promised land because of their faithlessness. And God was saying to Moses, How, you know, I'll just get rid of them. And Moses is, is interceding for the people, and he says, Yahweh is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty. 
pardon the iniquity of this people. I pray according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And so within the law, uh, there's the letter of the law, and then there's the spirit of the law. And to try to find that, that happy, you know, fit between the two is a very difficult position for any judge. And so she presents this hard case, this conundrum. And it is a very difficult one. David initially is, again, going to hold to, well, he killed his brother. He gets killed. And... Uh, you know, again, she's, but he's the only son. The name of the father will perish. And she's got these other points she's bringing into the story. Uh, but this does not put him above the law. And, and uh, you know, this, you cringe reading this for David. And I'm, you know, part of, the, part of it is as I read this story, I'm still rooting for David. But he's kind of messing. He's making a few mistakes still. Because, again, the Lord is not with him like he was. The fallout of his sin. It was a very serious matter. Uh, churches, pastors, we see this, uh, you know, our share of requests for exception. I'm the exception. And uh, they don't see anything else but themselves many times. And if they don't like the decision, you know, they vote against the church with their feet. They walk out and don't come back. Uh, and some Christians, they, they cringe when true mercy is shown. And grace to others, except when it's shown to them, they applaud it. Uh, this wanting to be an exception is problematic because someone else is going to want to come along and heighten it. So, if, you know, if you just, you know, I have to have my coffee. I've got to have it. So I should bring it into the sanctuary. Uh, it's like medicine to me. Well, of course, I'm being a little absurd because I don't want to cut too close to reality. I might get one of you. And I don't want to necessarily do that. And, but then if you say, okay, yeah, we know you are a coffee addict and you have to have it or she'll, you'll pass out. So we're going to let you do it. Well, what's going to happen next Sunday? There could be a Starbucks opened up in the can. Well, not in this church. It'll never be a Starbucks. Anyway, Woolies Coffee Stand would have a better chance. But anyway, uh, exceptions can be dangerous stuff. And you know when a person is seeking an exception... They're already, in many cases, already a problem. They've already made up their mind that they've got to get this or else you're going to pay. So that's what she wants. She wants, but the, with the king, it's different. <clears throat> Joab's conundrum is just that. It puts David in a lose-lose situation. It, it's confusing, it is difficult, it is important, and it is impossible, all at the same time, to come out uh, you know, squeaky clean. Uh, they would extinguish my, my amber uh, that is left, and that is her remaining income as well as the, the family name of her husband. Um, verse 8, Then the king said to the woman, <clears throat> Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. See, he does right here. He says, I'm not making a decision on this. This is a tough one. I need to think about this. Maybe he would get... Uh, you know, his advisors, the counselors, what do you think about this? Run it by them, get input. Maybe he would want to take this to the Lord. So he's reluctant to make a snap decision, and, and in that he is wise. Uh, had he demanded that the guilty son stand before him, the, the ruse would have been over immediately. It would have just been the end of the, you know, this fictitious story. Verse 9 and the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and, uh, and his throne be guiltless. And so she's starting to annoy me now. He already said, come back. And she's not stopping. And this is what I meant. A man may have said something. David said, would have said something like, I said, I'll get back to you. But <clears throat> wanting to be kinder, uh, he, he, you know, the, the whole King Kong thing going on there, he's going to listen to her. And so she, she is wise. I'm not saying she's just an actress. She, is, she has to know um, how to respond to whatever he's, he's, he's going to counter with. And she's doing it right here. And so what she is saying is, well, if you make my son the exception, I'll be the guilty one. I'm the one that came to you and asked. Not you, king. You'll be blameless in this. I mean, what... 
people can say. That the, you know, the widow was there. What was the king supposed to say? So that's what she's saying is the guilt is not on you. It would be on me if you let my son go. And so she's applying mercy um, all over this. Uh, verse 10. So the king said, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you anymore. So David said, okay, look, I'll give you that much. Nobody's going to bother you. I'm assuring that you'll be protected. But still... He's unwilling to pardon the son at this point. And so she's got her work cut out. I wonder how much Joab paid her. Uh, I don't know. <clears throat> Verse 11. Then she said, Please let the king remember Yahweh your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, as Yahweh lives, no, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So he just let her kept going, and now he messed up. He's given her what, what she wanted. She says the avenger of blood. Well, that's what Absalom was. Wasn't the avenger of blood in the case that Tamar was not killed by Amnon. However, the crime he committed against her was a capital crime, and he should have been executed for it. But he was the exception. David made an exception with Amnon, and it, it brought all these pro other problems. Um, the avenger of blood had the legal right to execute justice. It would have been a, a, just a legal thing unless they had made it to a city of refuge, which is not brought up in the story. And he said, it continues here in verse 11, and, she, and he said, as Yahweh lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So by this oath to protect the murderer, in the woman's story, David is unwittingly agreeing to protect Absalom, who is, in the story, the son deserving of judgment. And again, I hold that he's not. Absalom would have had a case to say, you know, as I've been pointing out, but it, it got... Ugly, real quick. He fled right away, and it never came to the courts. He wasn't going to risk it. Uh, an advisor would have said to him, yeah, but, you know, if your father wasn't going to judge Amnon, he's not going to judge you. You're not going to lose two sons. I think you should stand your ground and say, listen, nobody did justice for, for Tamar. But it didn't work out that way. So the whole thing is just this gnarled story. It's a scrambled egg. And we come along thousands of years later, and we look at this story, and we try to... See, what is right, what is wrong? Well, we know what is right and what is wrong by the characters that are involved. We have the whole story. Uh, but we get to those conclusions by study, by study of what, what is in God's word, believing that he has preserved it just for that reason. I do not believe God has preserved his word so that we could just be confused. Yeah, there are confusing things in the, in the scriptures, but uh, they are, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The, the mysteries belong to God. But he's also allowed some things to, you know, I should just quote, read it now that I brought it up. Uh, pardon me, I'll be right back. As promised. Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Well, the children, if they're going to find out the things that are revealed in God's word, they're going to have to study it. And for us, it's doubly hard because we're removed from not only the Hebrew culture, but the Grecian culture also. And so, you know, just, just thinking about this, Paul, when we get to Paul's writings in the New Testament, you know, he's just, he did so much in the land of modern Turkey, um, which means he wasn't a vegetarian. Turkey? Okay, anyway. Uh, he, he just does so much work in Turkey. And as you follow his paths from Cilicia and Tarsus all the way through, you're just quite taken by the effort the man uh, put into establishing churches uh, and then fought for them. You know, it wasn't a church that Paul established that he did not have to go back and fight for. Uh, it was just never an easy run for him. And I used to think of Moses as, man, Moses was just stuck with a people that were just trouble every time. You, it wasn't for Joshua and Caleb. You know, everybody was a problem. Miriam, Aaron, all of them. And then you get to Paul, and he talks about 
you know, the pirates and the thieves and the sickness and the roads and all the stuff going on. But God paved those roads for Paul to travel with the gospel, to bring it to, into Europe, and uh, he did just that. But it wasn't this pretty, you know, choreographed dance of the nutcracker. This was a very difficult thing for Paul. Anyway, that's a side note. Uh, here in verse 11, and he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall. Uh, since the situation is the same, he's fallen into the trap. He has extended more rights to the villain than the victim, which is, we, we hate to see that, do we not? What about the, 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 vic- <clears throat> the victim? And this is where the exception lands him in the story. As I've been maintaining, his loss of discernment and uh, in adhering to the law and slowing down and not being pressured is uh, evidence that, uh, you know, he, the, the, the guilt was still a dominating force in his mind. He had not yet gotten past it. I don't, um, I don't know if you see it. As you listen to David speak in this chapter, he doesn't sound like the David, as I mentioned, of chapter 1 and 2 in the early days. That, 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 that I will seek Yahweh. Where's the Urim and the Thummim? That kind of you know, approach is just not there like it once was. Verse 12, Therefore the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word. To my lord, the king, and he said, say on. You see why I don't like her now? Uh, Again, she's, you know, she's doing what she's hired to do. And David is letting her do it. But she's irritating me nonetheless. If I were watching this, I would be hitting that fast forward button to get to what does he finally say? Uh, Maybe you guys can sit through that and, you know, the movies, they profile and they just build it up and fill up time. Anyway, uh... I try to watch as many black and white movies as I can, and even those make me fast forward. I'm just becoming an irritable old man (laughs) and kind of enjoying it. (laughs) I've been looking forward to this since third grade. (laughs) Anyway, I had a neighbor that owned a Rambler. Some of you know that kind of car. Get off my lawn. It's like, well, I'm that guy now, just without the Rambler. Anyway, verse 14, uh, therefore, she's, uh, so he says, say on. He, he, he's not, but you've got to say, he's not being rushed. He, he, on the outside, he seems like he's interacting. Uh, he's not being rushed, but he is being rushed at the same time in that he has already made his decision. Verse 13, so the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. Hmm. Well, I think it's a little stronger in the English with you schemed. I mean, that word, I would have blacked out at that point. It just That's all I would have heard. You, you said the king schemed, huh? Well, I'm scheming now. Uh, executioners will just take her out. But, of course, he's not going to do that. He's guaranteed the safety of her son at the expense of justice. And that's what she's holding on. Listen, why don't you bring Absalom back then? Is it a family thing? Is it, uh, you know, do you view Absalom as the killer? What's going on with this? Uh, So the trap is sprung, as it was when Nathan gave his parable in chapter 12. Uh, She's gotten him to pronounce judgment. This, This whole matter from Ammon to Absalom, it's just a sinful wreck of mis that, that David mishandled, just all the way through his inaction in chapter thirteen. When he is told what happened, it says David was angry. That's all that happened. He never, he did not act upon that anger, and he was supposed to. Today we have, you know, the liberal scholars, the liberal approach. Blessed are those who tolerate everything, for they shall not be made accountable for anything. Well, that's false, but some people live that way. Uh, We wanted to see David hold Amnon accountable, and he did not. 
He made a fatal exception, and there everything fell apart. What does that tell me today? That, well, you know, I don't want to be a hard nose with everyone, because there are those people that, you know, I never forget a face, but in your case, I'll make an exception. There are, there are genuine exceptions to be made from time to time. Um, you know, somebody in the workstation with a temperature of 106, I think you make exceptions for that person. Uh, <laughs> free ice water. Uh, anyway, but it's sticky. And who gets to make the final call in positions of authority, as David is? Well, that's why I firmly believe when the Lord said to his disciples, what you bind on earth, I'll bind in heaven. What you loose on earth, I'll loose in heaven. He's going beyond just the gospel. He said, when you make these judgments within the ministry, you need some margin because you're going to get gray zones that nobody's going to have the answer to. And you've got to make a decision. And so make it. I've got your back. And if David had made his decision either way here, um, if he said, you know what? Yes, I'm going to exercise mercy. And I think God would have certainly honored it. And if he says, no, I'm sorry, he's guilty. I'm not making an exception. But that is not how it worked out. It worked out that he was you know, some, being talked out of, being the one who made the decision. And then he finds out, he's going to find out that it's all a fake story. I would have been pretty steamed. I said, you know what? What is with you people? Nathan did this, and now here you come. I mean, who's next? I, I would have been, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't have been too happy. He probably, I don't think he was happy with the whole thing. And the reason why I say that is because he's going to bring Absalom back, but as I mentioned, he's not going to see him for three years. He just, the whole thing is convoluted. It's twisted up. And they brought him a scrambled egg. And they say, here, unscramble this, king. Uh, so she says, if you can pardon an unknown murderer in a fictitious story, he doesn't know that just yet, but he's getting the clues, then you can pardon your son. Uh, she's using going to use precedence. Well, precedence, I don't think, should overrule justice. I don't understand that with the court systems. If a court makes a bad decision, we're just going to perpetuate it because that was the first one. That does, that's crazy. And now some lawyer might stand up and object, and then the crowd would be on him. <laughs> just simply because he's a lawyer, right? No, we love Christian lawyers, just not as much as other Christians. Uh, it's not true. It's, they're just, I mean, they're in a system. A courthouse is a combative, it is violent, it is ugly. There's nothing uh, 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 friendly about it. And it, um, you know, that's why the prophet says it's not for man to judge himself, to rule over himself. And these courts, man, ugh. Jesus even spoke about it. Anyhow, uh, verse 14, <clears throat> oh, incidentally, Absalom, in real life, committed lesser of an offense than the fictitious son in her story. They fought. They had a fight. He killed him. That's her story. Absalom avenged his sister. So technically, the way I see it is there's some justification on his part. Verse 14, for we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life. But he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Okay, this has gotten good to her. I think that she's into, she's into this now. And now she's preaching. Uh, so it's gotten away. She's making good points. She's, again, she's not stupid. Uh, but she, we have it because these are official court documents. It's the king's court. And the scribes are writing this stuff down. Uh, and, and so... She says his life will be wasted, and she's poetic about the whole thing. Um, well, anyway, that's where it is for we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground. Yeah, that's the wasted life of her son, and, and in this case, Absalom, that she's applying it. Yet God does not take away, I'm still in verse 14, a life but he devises a means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Well, this actually is a beautiful truth about 
God in her story. This, in this single sentence, we have the doctrine of, of redemption introduced. That God does the, he, he finds a way to bring the banished ones back. Now, it doesn't mean he brings them all back just like that. We know the, the, the details are filled in for us in the New Testament and in the Old Testament too. But certainly more clearly presented in the New Testament. A man is banished by God because of man's sin. And righteously so, it is necessary. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. So he drove out the man, and he, this is, of course, the man, Adam and Eve, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Nevertheless, the banished one is not forgotten by God. And thus we have John 3.16 and many other verses in the New Testament. And we also have Isaiah 40, verse 1. You know, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says the Lord. And, you know, if you don't know this, Isaiah, as we have it in our Bibles, wasn't written originally with chapters and verses that, that came much later. But when they did divide the chapters and verses without intentionally doing this, the first um, 39 books of Isaiah really are about Israel, about Old Testament issues, the, the Jewish people directly. It can be boring reading through us. We read about, you know, Moab and, and all the other, Edom and all these places. And to us, it's maybe heavy-duty reading, which to them was very real. It would be like speaking about New Jersey's plan to take over the world. And... I just got that from the headlines. No, okay. But, but it's that rel something relative to us. But when you get to chapter 40, the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, it's all about Messiah. And there are 27 chapters in the New Testament. There are 39, chapter, uh, 39 books. Books and letters in the New Testament, 39 in the Old. I should probably slow down and re-say that. 39 Old Testament books... The first 39 chapters of Isaiah really are concerned with the Old Testament people of God. There are 27 New Testament letters and books. And uh, the last 27 chapters of Isaiah really are about the Messiah, the Christ to come. And that is an interesting uh, connection. Well, back to this. Uh, Verse 14 is where we still are, having just spoken about the banished ones. She is saying that David should follow God's ways in make, making a way for the banished ones to come back because God does it. And uh, David is just, is this a strange passiveness that seems to have crept over David's life at this point. And that's what I've been talking about with his, he's not the same man. And it will continue even after, somewhat after Absalom's death, when he bewails Absalom and Joab has to, you know, like, cut it out, David. You, you're more worried about Absalom who caused all this than the people that are out there dying on the battlefield to keep you on the throne. And, and he, Joab would be right. He was right when, he, when we get to that. Uh, verse 15, Now therefore I have come to speak of this thing to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. So, um, again, she wants to make sure that the consequence for the crime of her son is not, he's not held accountable, gets the exception. Uh, the man who put her up to this story will be the man that will kill uh, the character that matches uh, the, the, the fictitious character matches in reality Absalom. Joab's going to kill Absalom. Verse 16, For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance. Uh, destroy them from the land of Israel. I think she's getting a little wordy here. Uh, but this is how it happened. This is true to life. Verse 17, Your maids... And David's just sitting there listening, right? Uh... Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting, for as the angel of God, so is my lord the king in discerning good and evil, 
and may Yahweh, your God, be with you. Uh, David could do without this flattery. And she's pouring that on. I don't think it really helps her case. Uh, unless, you know, she, but we're not there. He, she may be reading his face and sensing, okay, he's getting a little impatient or something. And so she throws this in. Verse 18, then the king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. The woman said, please let my lord the king speak. <laughs> to which I would say, well, I am the king and I'm going to speak anyway. But now he's on to her. I don't know what triggered it. I don't know if she's just her pouring it on too quick, too, too thick. I don't know if he glances over at Joab and sees him making the wrong kind of face. And he connects, the, you know, that these two are related. But he's now on to her. And he realizes that the two combative sons are totally about him. And Joab has put her up to this, verse 19. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. I, I would like her to just say yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> but she's just going on. For your servant Joab <clears throat> commanded me, and he put these words in the mouth of your maidservant. So she throws him under the proverbial bus. Yes, Joab did it. He put the words in my mouth. Get him. Uh, Again, you know, when, you, when you're in a position of authority and you're trying to work out a problem, you really want the solution, the right solution, and you're trying to listen to God and you listen to the person. You don't want to make them feel that you're rushing them, though sometimes you have to because a lot of people, um, you know, they just they think while they're talking and they don't stop thinking and therefore they don't stop talking. And you can lose a point because they've hit a big point that needs to be addressed, but they're still yapping. And that's just human, you know, so you have to know when to kind of interrupt without making the person feel that you are uh, not interested in what they have to say. Because usually an interruption of someone else means that what you have to say is more important than what they are saying. Well, sometimes people make it that way, right? Um, it's called babbling. Any verse 20, <clears throat> to bring about... This change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. Well, that's not true. She's lying. Uh, she, she's, of course, flattering him, thinking real quick on her feet, so to speak. She's saying the intentions of Joab were noble intentions. He's trying to disentangle all of this. He's trying to get Absalom back and your relationship was restored. You've been walking around the palace with your knuckles dragging on the ground, longing for Absalom. So Joab does something. That's what she's saying in her own way. If I had said it to the king like that, he would have had me executed. You don't say to the king, well, you've been moping. Uh, we're sick of it. So, so stop blaming us for trying to make your messed up life right. That wouldn't have worked. Uh, but uh, she, again, is um, getting, getting, covering the ground necessary. Uh, the the humanness of the Bible is all over its pages. For instance, um, and, and the divinity at the same time. There's places in the Bible that, you know, you should cover. You shouldn't say that. You should hide that part of the story. It's a failure of faith. It's a negative confession, brother. I mean, it was a coming to Peter's failure. Why not cover that up? Well, because they were honest and they were giving you the story as it is. And the humanness of it all so that we can identify with it because that's what we're supposed to do. I didn't think that before I became a Christian. I thought the Bible was just, you know, not something that was very human. And it is very much, um, not in its authorship, of course. Verse 21, and the king said to Joab, all right, I've granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. It's very curt. It's very short. Uh, and I think that David is irritated it, just by the whole thing, by everything. He's, he's up in years in his life now. Uh, you know, he, he has a different approach to his latter years than Solomon in Ecclesiastes. You know, the one thing that the older saints have to watch is that they do not pass their, you know, some of their fatalistic experiences <laughs> on to the next generation. 
You know, you imagine saying, son, look, life is hard. You need to quit right now. And the kid is five. <laughs> I mean, you just, you don't want to do that. You want them to run as hard as they can into that handball court, into that brick wall. Just give it all you got, son, and then we'll patch you up. So each generation ministering to the next generation has to be wise and careful. And yet, as you get older, you're stuck with your experiences, and you can't fake it to yourself. At least you shouldn't. I don't know. Maybe you have, some of you probably lie to yourselves. I don't think you do that. Well, we all do to some degree. It's called an escape hatch. You just don't want to wear that hatch out. Anyway, verse 21, when the king says, all right, you've got what you wanted. Uh, he could not go back in time. There's no way he could win this thing. Um, this exception is going to make more problems for him because Absalom's going to try to steal the throne because David's going to continue to mishandle it. He's not stopped yet. He's not like, okay, fine, bring him back. And then Absalom comes back and says, son, I'm sorry that we've had this mess. Let's make a, a, a fresh start. He doesn't do that. He, he keeps, he, iso- he's, he isolates Absalom. And of course, Absalom's saying, hey, all these good looks are going to waste here. You know, you got to put me in, in, in the palace, back in the king's court. And when David does do that, it's a disaster. Verse 22, Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. Well, this is kind of odd to see Joab like this. Usually Joab is dropping people on their face. And uh, yet here he is, um, you know, because I think he genuinely loved David. Though David, you know, he's just tired of Joab at the end. He tells Solomon from his deathbed, you got to kill that guy. (laughs) He just, he puts a hit on him on his deathbed. So, because he was, he was a problem. He became a problem. Verse 23. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. What was that like? Again, Joab, he can kill like a pro. And he is traveling back with the man that he doesn't know, neither one of them know, that the day is going to come where he's going to thrust this man through with three spears right in the chest looking for a vital organ to kill him, and he does kill him. Uh, and it's just a bizarre part of life, is it not, when you look at it like that. Uh, and Absalom brought it on himself. Uh, verse 20, well... When Absalom, when Joab was born, this is a little-known fact. Um, the 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 what do you the nurse say that again? Midwife. Thank you. Usually I can't. Usually when it sounds like from up here, <laughs> so but I got that one. So the midwife, you know, when Joab was born, and they put him aside and they say, "Leave that one alone," because he is bad to the bone. So, <laughs> that's a true story. It's in your Bible, and if you've not found it, it's because you're not as good of uh, expositor as I am. So, verse 24, and the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So, I mean, this is messed up, David. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. I mean, David is wrong. It doesn't justify Absalom's behavior. There are other ways Absalom could have handled this. This is a quasi-reconciliation. It is misguided, it is doomed, and it's destined for trouble that will suck in the entire nation. This is a black hole, just sucks in everything. Romans 8, uh, 12, Paul says, He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I mean, who wants you know somebody to you know, tell you no problem and they're screaming at you. <laughs> it's just that, not that kindness that they've resolved this with the, with the Lord and they enjoy showing mercy. And that's really what's absent here because David is, as a, he's still smoldering from the judgment that is on his life, which is a message to us. You better watch your step. Verse 25 Now, in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks, 
from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Now, saying he looked like Fabio would be an insult, so just hold that. Uh, anyway, looks can be deceiving. Beauty's only skin deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> for those of you who know the song, uh, this appealed to some people more than uh, there was nothing. No, there's no moral. There was like, and he was a righteous man. That that's what's missing. We're just getting the exterior, and when the inside is just vacant rooms, there's, there's, he's shallow. Um, although he, again, I applaud what how he handled Amnon, but that that's not enough. That's just one part of the flesh. If I lived in those days under those rules, I would have looked and had the means, I would have looked to have done the same thing. But we, of course, don't do that in the New Testament church. Um, In the eyes of men, he's the heir apparent. He looks like he should be the king one day. But God has already chosen Solomon. And I think a lot of people lost sight of that. In the New Testament, folks lost sight of the fact that there was no way Christ was returning until Peter was persecuted. Um, we see that, you know, when Jesus said, Peter, when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands. And so it's kind of saying, you know, I'm not coming back. This prophecy has to be fulfilled. And so it's easy to lose sight of things. We all make blunders no matter how hard we try. It is an occupational disappointment in the ministry to make a mistake from the pulpit. Um, Anyway, this only increased his arrogance. Uh, ending in worse sin, a worse sin than David committed against Uriah when he goes after his father. These features that should have contributed to his future success as a king, uh, they died on his character. His character killed whatever exterior blessings he held. No one, you know, straightened him out as a kid enough, it seems like. One commentator says this. He says, how many a shiftless youth whose every whim is gratified by his doting mother, develops into a worthless wastrel. (laughs) Nobody writes like that anymore. Uh, Who wants to hear that again? Uh, He's saying, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. And this is what happened with Absalom. Verse 26 now. And when he, cut the, uh, when he cut the hair of his head... I'll just skip that verse. Who cares about people with all that hair? Let's look at verse 26. And when he cut his, the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. And when he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. Well, this, of course, is setting us up for his downfall. He's... that. Long, luxurious hair is going to be easy pickings for Joab's spears. But the, those who do the research on these things says his hair was five pounds when he cut it. I, I can't imagine that. I mean, not just because it's me, but even if you got a wig. There's a wig. Can you get a long-haired wig weighing five pounds? Uh, what's uh, that uh, country singer? Crystal Gale, I think it was. Her hair down to the floor. Man, that, that had to be a problem on many levels. How do you run through the rain with hair like that? I mean, it just... Anyhow, I, you know, hair is overrated. Let's <laughs> lame all the things it does wrong. Clog drains. Uh, all right. Anyway. Well, look what happened to Samson. All right, just saying. God loved Elisha. <laughs> <laughs> so, verse 27. To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. And she was a woman of beautiful appearance. Appearance. Now, this is uh, not his sister, as I one time forgot with this verse not too long ago. We'll pass over that very quickly. Uh, it's good to hide your mistakes. Anyhow, um, it says here he has three sons. Well, they all must have died because we read in the 18th chapter, now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley, for he said, 
I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's Monument. And that's just more of the arrogance. Fine, I'll make a, make a monument to myself. And it's just it's, that's, that self-promotion, that kind of self-promotion is not advisable. Uh, anyway, which the communist leaders loved. I mean, you know, they loved posters of themselves up. Verse 28, And Absalom dwelt for two years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Uh, that had to really mess with him. Again, his handsomeness was going to waste. He was just uh, just uh, this prince that had no outlet. <clears throat> sort of all dressed up and nowhere to go. Verse 29, Therefore Absalom sent for Joab, to send him to the king, but he would not come in. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Well, Joab probably said, look, I did my part. This is a family matter now. You guys work that out. Or, you know, just in talking with David, because he was close to David, uh, he may have gotten the feeling, that, you know what, I'm not bringing him to David. I, I've done, again, done my part. Verse 30, so he said to his servants, see... Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Well, that was dumb. I mean, if there's anybody's field you don't want to set on fire, this is the guy. Um, no, I don't think when Joab killed him he was thinking about this, but, <laughs> but it, it would fit. Verse 31, and Joab arose and came to Absalom's house. Imagine Joab showing up at your door, dressed like a UPS guy. To throw you off guard. Oh, it's just UPS. And then you see the spear in his hand. Uh, and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Now, the, the field is not, he said, my, the fields were close to each other. They, they weren't up against the house. I, I think that would, the fire marshals would have really been upset with that. Um, <clears throat> verse 32. And Absalom answered Joab, look, I sent to you saying, come here so that I may send you to the king to say, why have you, uh, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if not, uh, pardon me, but if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. Well, that goes back to what I've been saying, that last taking it from the bottom up. There really was a gray zone. There really was no iniquity in him. He he, he killed someone who the law required to be killed, and no one else was doing it, and he was the avenger. And that would have been a good case in the court. <clears throat> but for him to be treated as being unimportant on top of having nothing to do, being the king's son, uh, that was like worse than death for him. I think this is when he was plotting his overthrow, because he's, he's, he's going like, to really don't like the guy Instantly, when we get to the next chapter, verse 33. So Joab went to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. Well, again, this is going to end in disaster. And had we the David of chapter one, none of this would have happened. But we don't. And that is how it is for us. You ever look at a picture of yourself when you were like five or six years old? you say, what happened to that person? Where are they now? Um, you know, then, then I look at a person, look at a picture of me when I was in the military, and the two are irreconcilable. This one was cute and innocent, and this one was a guy that I never want to meet again in my life. Uh, you know, and that's, so here we have David, this before and after, but it isn't that far. Um, Absalom's not a prodigal son. Absalom is a time bomb. And he is about to go off. He's given a second chance to be good, and he's going to ruin it. That speaks so profoundly to us all. Uh, with Cain, God warned him that evil was ready to pounce in his heart. And it did. Genesis chapter 4, if you do well, Will you not be accepted if you do the right thing? Why do you think you're entitled to be accepted and you just blatantly don't obey my word? I tell you, don't bring me a fruit basket. I hate fruit baskets. 
and you bring me one. And, and then you're angry with your brother because he listened and you did not. That, that's what was happening with Cain. He felt entitled. And my, my, my efforts should be applauded just as much as the next guy. And he continues in Genesis. We're almost done. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Sin wants to devour you. It's ready to pounce. It wants to rule you, but you should rule over it. And Cain slew his brother. And Absalom is going to try to slay his father. This is Satan's work. And we're, we are armed against it. And Satan considers the Christian that is armed with the sword of the scripture as a threat. And may it always be so for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, the lessons to no surprise, continue to fly off the pages for us. And may we uh, bring honor to you by doing something with the things that you point out to us. We ask that you get us all home safely tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.